Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here today to have a really special conversation with Candace Kale. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm I am really excited to bring this conversation to our listeners. You and I were talking off mic just a moment ago about how we sort of curate who we talk to and how we have these conversations. And I was so excited. It took us a moment to get ourselves on each other's calendars, but I really have had this conversation in the back of my mind because I know it's going to resonate for lots of people across all kinds of grief experiences, not because your story is their story, but because it really covers so much the experience of being disenfranchised in your grief, of feeling very obscured and hidden and covered up. So I'm going to ask you the question I ask all the guests, which is, do you want to just tell us how you come into the world of grief and loss? It's a, it is a big, long story. We like um, this here. We like Yeah. This. Yeah. So I, as a young woman, I was actually 20 years old. I got pregnant and had a boyfriend. So we were you know, planning to move forward with, with life. We weren't planning to be married or anything like that, but you know, things were going to move forward. And, but what en- ended up happening is we, things didn't work out, which oftentimes happens. And I ended up in a position where him and his family didn't think I was really mom material. Right. And I was unsure of that myself. And I went to get counseling. Now I went to a, a counseling situation that was, was in my, you know, in hindsight biased. Yeah. And I was basically, you know, manipulated to a great extent into relinquishing my child to adoption. And, you know, at the time it was having gone through a counseling situation where they basically brought out all the negatives in my life. So the counseling was meant to help me see the realities, which were, I was poor, I was alone, I was single, you know, I didn't have an education, I had came from a background of a lot of abuse and neglect. And the way that they framed it was I was destined to repeat those same things rather than giving me some tools or helping me find tools to be different. And then on the heels of that came, but we have lots of parents who are qualified and better and wealthy and educated. And, and, you know, there's two of them and all of those things. Right. So, and then, you know, on the heels of that, you can pick the parents. So I was at a time when it was early open adoption or quote unquote open adoption, which back then meant I could select from a group of candidates. I could meet them one time and then I would get updates once a year. And so I was like, oh, you know, as someone who's fairly controlling, I was like, oh, I give me a sense of control in a fairly uncontrollable situation. And so, and then as, you know, kind of on the heels of that, when the conversation changed to, you know, if you do this, it will be very brave and very selfless and, you know, lifting me up. So they had torn me down (laughs) And then they gave me this, wow, this is a really beautiful, amazing thing to do. Well, of course, is I'm going to latch onto that because I was feeling so horrible. I needed something, anything to help me feel better. And, and that did it. So it was to me in hindsight, you know, not at the time, but in hindsight, I look at it as very coercive and gaslighting. But at the time I just went through with it and I met 
the parents that I chose, loved, loved, loved the adoptive father. I mean, his letter in the group was like, oh, this is the, this is the person, you know, this is the guy who can be a father, which I'd never really had a good father figure. So I was like, this is wonderful. Right. So I felt good about that. And I walked away from, you know, after I signed my rights away and I stuffed that right down and turned it off, you know, and, and did everything I could to not think about it or deal with it anymore. I think I, I allowed myself to grieve for about two weeks. I went to a friend's house and I sat in her basically hidden room and I just cried and yelled and screamed and, and, you know, did all, all of the things I felt like I needed to do and then went, moved on. Yeah. And, uh, but over the course of the first few years, I would get an update right around his birthday. And, uh, and I would, you know, they were always these amazing, beautiful experiences for me that I would get them out of the mail and I would run to my room and I would lock my door, no matter where I was leaving, lock my door and I'd lay everything out, the, you know, six, seven, eight pictures and I'd read the envelope. And then I, when I was done, I'd, I would put everything away back the way it was and keep it perfect. And I'd tuck it in my drawer where I had the few things of his, I had a pacifier, I had his baby bracelet. I had the the blue blanket that I had stolen from the hospital. Yeah. And, and it was this little tiny container that I allowed myself to grieve. And then I would tuck it away, but I did that for lots of years. And, but ended up, what ended up happening is the, what, and has, does happen a lot even now in, in adoption is, you know, I certainly didn't talk about it with anybody because I felt ashamed. Yeah. And I didn't want people to say to me at a certain point, I got to a point where I didn't want people to say that I was brave and selfless because I didn't feel that. Yeah. And, and so I just really kept it. It was very protected, but then the, then the updates stopped coming. Oh shit. And I had no recourse because when I went to the agency, they're like, well, you signed away your rights a long time ago and they don't have any legal obligation. Now, I thought they did the way that they presented it to me of when course. they offered it of course. was that they would. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was, a, that was another level of turning it off because I didn't have any recourse. There was nothing I could do. And fortunately by that time I was with my husband and he was someone who he knew about him from, we were friends before. So he knew me when I was pregnant and then we got together later in life. And, and when we first got together as a couple, we were traveling and, and I finally was like opening up to him. I was like, you know, his birthday is coming up in a couple of weeks. I know it's going to be hard. You just need to know because this is what's going on. And I, I was actually able to share that. Wow. And he's, his was, well, what do you want to do to celebrate? And I'm like, what? You don't celebrate this. This is like the most saddest thing in my whole life and he's like no it's like you're still a mother mm-hmm. and we should celebrate and you know he just presented it in a totally different way and was just completely like this is matter of fact and that particular year he took me out for dinner and we sat and I cried at dinner and he sat there and just held my hand I was just like this is okay this is perfectly okay It's extraordinary how someone else's viewpoint of something when they're not inside the trauma can change the narrative perspective, right? They're not inside it. And so he's not looking at this from the perspective of a vulnerable 20-year-old mother. He's looking at it as your life partner 
who is saying this is a painful thing, but an extraordinary thing. And so we can do the pain. You've done the pain, but how do we acknowledge the extraordinary thing? And then all of a sudden a whole road opens up that had never been there before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, every year before his birthday or Christmas or, you know, I mean, always, there's always certain days that are harder than others, but usually two weeks ahead of time, he got in the habit and he would ask me, how are you doing this year? Do you, do you want to go out for mother's day brunch or do you need alone time? Do you need a bath? Do you need to go off on a weekend away? But just always totally open and really helped me become more comfortable with that part of me. Yeah. And, and become comfortable with the fact that because I could express to him, I was sad. Sometimes I was so angry. Sometimes I was so angry at me, angry at the family for quitting talking to me. I mean, whatever, right? Angry at society. But he just sat with it and he didn't have any demands and he didn't expect me to get over it or anything like that. And so, yeah, so thank goodness for him, because yeah. I, I became a little more comfortable, not a lot, a little more. Yeah. I shared with a few people very rarely, but, but I did. And then two days before his 18th birthday, I got a letter and it was from his adoptive dad. And it just, it was, you know, there were, I think 60 photographs and, oh you know, God. five page letter and, and there was a lot in there, but the most important thing from my perspective was a phone number. How long had you gone up until that point with no communication? Last communication was at eight years old. So 10 oh years. My God. 10 years. Yeah. Wow. And the dad was giving you the phone number. Was it clear that that was something that your son would also welcome? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he, within the letter, you know, he said he was sorry. And I mean, there was just a lot of things that came out with the letter, but, but it was like, you know, I'm reaching out. He's expressed an interest in reconnecting with you. Here's my phone number. So I called. So I, well, I waited for my husband to come home and I'm like, whoa, you know, and, and, and he's like, you know, he read the letter and got to the end and there was phone number. He's like, well, have, are you ready to call? <laughs> you know? And I called and, and I spoke to, to his adopted dad for a little while and then spoke to my son. And now, first of all, how amazing to hear his voice, but it was a very short conversation because I, from my perspective, I reverted back to that 20 year old girl. I totally get that. And I didn't know what to say. And, and he didn't know what to say. And it was like this volley of (laughs) quiet (laughs) and didn't know what to say. And finally he said, can we communicate by email? And I'm like, oh yes, thank you. (laughs) And yeah, so we began sending emails back and forth infrequently. My husband and, and his adoptive dad were like, you know, you need to give him control because I had learned by that time that He's the only one in this situation that didn't have a choice yeah. and he needs to have the choice now. And it just about killed me because all I wanted to do is I wanted to fly there and I wanted to grab him and I didn't ever want to let him go again. Uh I couldn't do that because that would have totally scared him. Right. So, yeah. So over the course of a couple of years and we just intermittent, very infrequent. Yeah was very difficult, but, you know, I gave him control. And then finally he's like, would you like to meet? Oh. 
And as you can imagine, I jumped on that. <laughs> so we, I live in Alaska. They live in Minnesota, got in a plane, you know, went down there. So my husband and I both went to meet him and his dad and, and his adoptive mom at that point had passed away. And so it was just the four of us. And it was, it, I mean, I can look back at it now and say it was one of the most amazing and beautiful days of my life. You know, it was probably about just six hours or so. And, and it was wonderful. When we arrived, they were on the doorstep right next to each other. They looked alike, which is unusual. So he looked like his adopted dad. Yeah. But then you put put me next to him and he looked just like me. Oh my God. And they would sit and talk together next to each other at the table and they would do similar mannerisms and similar vocals. But then I could also see his hands were my hands you know the colic in his hair was my colic and so it was like this this nature and nurture yeah right there in front of me the bifurcation of the two things yeah 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 so it was a beautiful beautiful day and I left that was like okay you know he expressed an interest in meeting my brothers and family and I was like oh this is great everything's gonna go great but then he pulled back which is fairly common in these situations and that we went back to fairly intermittent contact again, which was very hard again, same, same thing. And what eventually happened is he, he passed away in his sleep Mm. before we ever had a chance to see each other again. And with only, you know, again, very minimal contacts. I mean, I have all of his letters, emails and texts, you know, in, in one small little folder but yeah, so that's so brutal. It was, it was when he, when he passed, his adopted dad called and invited us to come to the funeral. And I was terrified because I thought they were going to turn me away because I was the woman that abandoned him. Yeah. Right. And that was not the case at all. We were embraced wholeheartedly. We, we spent, you know, the, the next three days, almost three days with them and the entire family, everybody referred to me as his mom. Wow. They would introduce me. This is his mom. And, and it was brutally painful and beautiful. I bet. I bet. Yeah. And, and since that time, me and his adopted dad have become quite close because we have figured out, or at least from my perspective, I have figured out that he, he and his family are all that remain of Michael. And, and that's, and, and they're completely willing and open to let me in. And I think for them, like I show up on the doorstep or come to a dinner or something and they're, it's Michael. It's, it's my, you know, I represent him. Yeah. 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 I think that, that really resonates. I, gosh, the story is, it's a hard story and, and it's evoked a bunch for me that I, I want to reflect, but the, your loved one's loved one, yeah. when your, when your loved one dies and there are other people out there that loved that person differently. And, you know, I think there can be conflict in that. I think that can be hard. But I also think it can be amazing. I think it can be the space where the disenfranchised component goes quiet because everybody knows 
who he was and what he meant to us. And, but God, that's a brutal story, right? We want a Hollywood ending. And when you were talking, the part that I really got, I just like felt it explode in my chest is the actual mothering of him that you do by not inserting your traumatized child self as the most important thing in the story that if you absolutely if you were to ask me what I think the hardest part of my parenting is is the part of me that had trauma as a child that's always trying to recover the adult part of me that's trying to show up for the for the child part of me that didn't get what she needed and to not have that be at the at the expense of my actual children is like a daily dance. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as like whose sandwich is going to get made first, you know, because I was a kid who made everybody else's sandwiches. So I always would have been the one who was the least well-fed, you know, how do I do it? And there is something just awe-inspiring about you being well enough regulated in your own yearning and need and pain to let him keep you at a distance. The wisdom in that is pretty extraordinary. And you said people told you to do that and that it was very hard. How did you do that? That's a lot of what I write about in my book. That's so much of what it's about is how it took everything within me to listen to the people that were giving me this wise advice. And, you know, for me, it was a combination of, because I'm, I tend to be one of those people that wants everything in a nice little row, you know? Totally. So I, I wanted to learn everything about it, which was a big part, reading and reading adoptees experiences and really paying attention to their lived experience and using that as an example for things to do and not to do. And so that was a super key important part was really keying into the adoptee experience. And, and then the other part was fixing or working on my own trauma, working on my own trauma and, and sitting with it. And probably one of the, the, the key things that happened, I think after, after he died, I mean, I spent at least the first eight months just flailing, you know, just, I just didn't even know what to do. And, and my husband's super supportive all the way through this. And, and, uh, but, but I still, for some reason, I couldn't find what I needed through him. I didn't have a therapist. I live in a very remote place. And I know you do. uh, But I also have a background in social work. So it's like, okay, there are things I can do. I just got to figure it out. Right. But the key moment happened for me. It was after Christmas, the year that he passed away. And I was just, again, just struggling with how to figure it out. Because from my perspective, when he died and and dealing with, I was learning about the things that you can do, right? Right. How do you grieve a child that's been, that's dead, right? How do you do that? Well, they, there were, there were all kinds of kinds of things. So things like set a place for them from at the table Mm -hmm. as if they're there buy what they would like as a favorite gift and give it to someone else, Mm -hmm. you know, but the thing was, he'd never sat at my table. Yeah. He, I didn't even know what he liked. We'd never, I didn't have any memories. And I was so, that was killing me, right? But what ended up happening is all of that was just compounding. I found myself in the, you know, in the middle of my bedroom floor, just completely like 
all right, I give up. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to give in to the grief. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I came out of it. I don't know what happened, but I basically turned and looked at a mirror that was on the wall. And what I saw was like an eight-year-old little girl. Yeah. And, and I was like, she needs a mother. She needs a mother. And I didn't have that at my disposal. So you know what? I'm going to need to do it myself. Yeah. And it was this change that took place in my head. I don't really even know necessarily how I got there other than the fact that I, I surrendered. Oh God, that is so go- I mean, it's making me think a million things, but it's so gorgeous. And we should say, because we said it off mic, but we haven't said it in general, that your book Goodbye Again is out in November, 2022. So as this podcast is coming out, your book will be available for people to read. And it is this story. It's the story of how you grow through this experience what you're describing, maybe without saying it this way, is that I think sometimes people are trying to manage grief, not actually grieve. Yes. Right. And so, and so we're like, oh no, I'm doing the grief work, but you don't get to decide what the grief work is. Grief will have its way with you. And so I, I certainly, I have had lots of folks come in for trauma work around grief, and it's clear that they've read a lot of books and they've done a lot of things, but it's, something that makes so much sense in my heart, which is in order to, you know, in Cheryl Sandberg's way, like, you know, kick the shit out of this option, option B that nobody ever wanted, which is very different than yielding whatever the experience needs from you. And it is so fascinating to me. And I imagine it must've been something to see your own little girl face in that mirror, but really what you lost was the opportunity when Michael dies to continue growing as a mother to him. Mm-hmm. And what you find looking in that mirror is that you still have to grow that mother part, but it's for yourself instead. Talk about temporal grief. The idea of like, is it, are you, are you grieving and yearning for the thing that was already like what, you know, the life I had with my grandfather and he's dying at 99 or are you grieving this whole future possibility which is more my imaginations, my hopes and dreams, which are usually the best of myself. And so when people are grieving children, it doesn't really matter how old that child is. You're grieving the whole future that you had hoped and dreamed for. And I can only imagine having fought so hard to get to this delicate place that the loss of that must have been totally disorienting and and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Just the realizations of that and the reality of that right. Right. Yeah, is just overwhelming. And, and the other part for me, part of what was going on in my head was, yeah, I'm grieving all these things that I'm never going to have. And we had just started dreaming about the future, yeah. but what happened all at the same time was I had never grieved what I had already lost. I had to go back. And and like every single thing that came up for me that I was grieving for him after he died, I could find a directly corresponding thing that I lost before. And I, so it was, it was compounded. And 
I couldn't grieve one without the other. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I've talked a lot about this on the podcast that, you know, grief doesn't have decimal points. It's, it's, it has color codes. And so it just goes into the file. And if, you know, you be touching a piece of grief that is specific to the death of your child now, that is also stuck to on the other side of the file folder, your grandfather, something that happened in high school, because that's how our mind works. It lumps information together. I'm curious about this because I know a little bit about sort of like how trauma can haunt us and that when we are children and we don't have the agency really, whether it's intellectually or actually just practically to make our own decisions, despite how the world may treat us, part of what happens is we have to sort of like sublimate, we have to create a world in which all of that is kind of okay, right? So adult children of alcoholics will tell you that they had all these strategies that they came up with as children for managing the system that they came up in. And some of those strategies probably are still employed these days, even though they don't live with alcoholics, because there hasn't been time to kind of update it. When did you begin to understand that the way in which you were quote unquote cared for as an expectant mother was actually not at all care, that it was not not maybe full of choice and agency for you in the way in which it was implied. When did that pivot begin? Because anger to me is a, is a jetpack of sort of movement through trauma that there has to be grief, but there is also often really profound anger that we need in order to move ourselves through some of that. Yeah. So for me, it, it wasn't until we reunited Yeah. because Again, you know, the connection was made and I was wanting to, you know, latch on (laughs) and I couldn't. So I, that was when I first initially began trying to research, how do you do reunion? How do, how do you do it? You know, there's got to be some tools out there. And at that time there wasn't much, there were some blogs and adoptee stories. So I, again, used those as examples, but what I did find you know, was other first moms in particular talking about their experiences. And when I could read their experiences, I'd be like, wow, that's, that's not okay. I couldn't see it for myself. I could see it for them. But as soon as I saw it for them, I'm like, oh my God, I had that same thing happen to me. So yeah, once we started reunion, I started to see some of these things that had taken place in terms of the mani- manipulation and the coercion and the, 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 the care under the guise of counseling. But I didn't get angry right away because I didn't have room for that. Yeah, I was focused on trying to figure out how to connect with my son. So it took a long time and it was a very gradual, slow thing. But I feel like once I got angry, which wasn't until after he died, Because until that point, there was hope. Yes. And I'm going to stay with the hope because I I have developed the ability to try to look for hope rather than look for the things that are going to be bad, right? Which is a skill. (laughs) It is a skill. skill. And and I think it's an instinct, right? One of the things that people talk to me a lot about, or, or they will come in with opinions about themselves and how they have managed impossible situations. 
I should have gotten a therapist sooner. I should have addressed this earlier. It won't surprise you because you just said it. I couldn't do this because it was going to be too much. You know, our, we have to stay regulated. What happened to me when my mom died was I was so dysregulated. I had to drop out of life. That is not the goal. I would have preferred to have been able to function at a B minus and then a couple of years in, I don't know, maybe turned around and said like, wow, I'm really carrying a lot of feeling about this, but that's not how my story went. When you're trying to stay connected to this son that you've yearned for forever, it doesn't serve your system to become wildly dysregulated. Now that may be what happened in those primary eight months after the death of your son, but in the moment, it's not going to help you to get wildly angry and super upset because you want your energy to be front facing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like since he died and now we're, you know, it's been over nine years, it's, it's taken me a long time to get to where I am and like writing the book was a, was a big part of coming through to the other side of it and, and examining it and my role in all of it. I've gotten to where I can hold the anger I have about parts of the situation and parts of the story, but I can also hold the grief and I can hold the joy because there's a little, there's some joy in there too. And I've that, from my perspective, when I look at, at the book that I wrote, that's what I want people to come away with, is that there's space for it all. Yeah. You make the space. And I have every right to be angry. I have every right to be sad. Yeah. I also have every right to be joyful. To be joyful. And trying to find that. One of the things, too, that with, with all of this, in terms of, you know, the, the disenfranchised grief or the ambiguous loss, and, and that so many people... Stay, stay focused on, or I shouldn't say so many people, society yeah. in general, and the, the powers that be, which tend to be where the money is, stays focused on the, on the, the message that adoption is beautiful. Yeah. But they forget that oh, it's a adoption begins from a child being separated from their everything they know. Yeah. So it's built on a beginning of trauma. And you can't separate those two. It's it's a very important thing to, to, to recognize. From my perspective as a first mother, you know, nobody wanted to see me cry. You know, I mean, and, and if I talked about them, that's what happened. Yeah. Right. And nobody really wants to see somebody cry. Right. You look at adopted kids, adopted adults and, and, you know, how, how is a child supposed to react when somebody says, oh, this is so beautiful. When for many of them, they come to the realization, what's beautiful about me losing my mom? Right. You know, you wouldn't. You can't skip the, you can't skip that whole section of the story. And I was thinking when you were talking a second ago, that the ability to honor and hold and experience the panoply of emotions that you were describing is how I actually define trauma recovery. People come in and they say, listen, we're going to work on your trauma and it's going to be hard, but we're going to do it. And you're going to find that you have a different threshold and you're going to make some changes and some things are going to fall away and you're going to go and grasp for things. One question that gets asked is how long does it take? And I never answer the question because nobody wants to know the answer to that question. It takes as long as it takes and it's really long. But also I get, you know, sophisticated questions like, what does it look like? And what I say is what it looks like is you will hold all of the emotions without having to chase any away. You'll be able to honor them. They'll be able to move through you and you won't have to tell yourself any stories about them. 
You won't have to convince yourself of a better version. You won't have to define it. It will just be the truth that you can be joyful about your son's adoptive experience and furious about it and scared about it and confused about it. And it's not a mud wrestling. Like one does not need to be more true than the other, that today I can be in this feeling. And that doesn't mean that the feeling that I had yesterday is a, is a fake feeling that actually the emotional experience, what that means is you've stabilized your own experience of trauma to, you know, that there's no longer an earthquake going on and that those things can just swim in the, in the pool and be there. To me, the beauty of what you're describing, which is that's the gift is that you give us the hope that that is a possibility. I mean, I know because I've done my own trauma work that that is a full on bloody street fight. And I know having had the gift of, of working with people as they are trying to believe in a new possibility of a world that is truer than the stories that they've either been told or tell themselves. But I think when you are describing that, I live in these experiences and the truth of these experiences now, both in my childhood and in my present day, that that is the most hopeful damn message I have really ever heard. And one of the reasons I'm so glad to be with you on your podcast, because I hear that in when, when you talk to your other guests and, and it's, it's that inclusivity and expansiveness that is so important for people healing specifically from trauma. Yeah. 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 And death is a trauma, right. And, and being traumatized basically means that it gets inside your system and starts creating some meaning And that, you know, when you've been traumatized, you have to get that out. Otherwise you will live as though that's true. Right. And those of us that have had trauma, childhood trauma, we have to like reassess and the adult trauma that I've had, you know, which mostly is like, it's your fault that your mother died. I have to let that be true and also know that it is not true and show up for my emotional experience. But what I, what I heard also inside your story, which I'm really grateful for is the understanding that even though no one could tell you how to do this, that you were looking, you were reading and it was like, yeah, but I'm not going to set a table for a kid that never sat at my table. It reminds me when I was reading these child development books, I have a master's degree in child development, but I was like, all right, I, I don't know what to do with these kids. I didn't know a lot about the vagus nerve. I didn't really understand sleep training. And I was like, I need these kids to go to sleep. I can't handle this. And I've three children, every single one of them has like the world's strongest gag reflex. So if they cough too hard, they could throw up. One of them has grown out of it. The other two haven't, she's 14. So there's hope for the other two, but you know, when you're reading all the way through every single book about how to sleep train, what it says is just let the baby cry. Just let the baby cry. The vagus nerve, well, they don't call it the vagus nerve. They say they'll, they'll cry it out and then they'll fall asleep. Well, you know what? All three of my kids did cried so hard. They threw up. Mm-hmm. So you know what? Not one book said, and if your child vomits all over himself, just leave him in his vomit. The amount of fury, everyone who knows me, anyone who is a friend of mine is now laughing that I'm mentioning this because the amount of fury that I had, that I had to invent something totally different that there was not a woman out there who had already made a blog post to tell me how the hell do I get these kids to sleep? I think one of the biggest, most painful elements of 
doing these impossible things is the cold, hard truth that people can guide you. They can coach you. They can hope for you. They can believe in you, but you have to fucking do it yourself. And in yours, nobody had written a book. And now you have written a book. You have given other people who will say me too, to so much of what you're describing, because again, you know, there are trauma is a universal story, but also, you know, no one could teach you how to mourn a loss that was very specific and only yours to mourn. And, you know, you said nine years ago, which means you've survived it. You are still surviving it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We're almost at the end of the hour. I looked at the clock and was like, that can't be right. But I know it's because I feel like I could talk to you all day. Can you just tell me about how your actual writing process came in? You know, I talk a lot about what are the verbs? How do people grieve? What does it look like? Do they turn to art? Do they turn to music? Do they go to therapy? The reason that I talk about it is I just know that not one is better than the other. I found writing after my mom died suddenly. I wrote a lot for process first, just to come my writing, my words down, help me understand my story better. And then I really needed other people to be like, I get it. I hear you. Like it wasn't enough for me to keep those words just to myself. I really needed, like when I'm giving a lecture and people are nodding, like I don't do well at a lecture when people are not focused on me. And so when they're nodding, I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm, you know, I'm, I make sense to people out there. That's great. I wasn't sure. I really needed the product component of being able to write. And I don't mean product like getting it published, although I mean product like people reading it and, be, and saying these words make sense. What was your, what was your experience with coming to the writing? So I, I've used journaling on and off since, well, actually since after the, he was surrendered for adoption, but, but almost always for only times when I was freaking out, you know, like I couldn't contain it and it was anger or sadness or grief or whatever. So when he actually, when he passed, that was when I made the decision happened at the same time that I realized I needed to mother myself was I need to write And I need to share it with people because I haven't been able to find what I'm looking for. So I'm going to try to write what I needed or what I need right now. And, and so I started a blog and I would just, you know, write things. So part of it was to share because I thought that it could help other people. The other part of it was being able to write and craft something that in my mind could hold the grief and sadness, mm. but, but turn it into something beautiful, mm. turn it into something that people could look at and be like, I felt that. Yeah. And that was an important thing for, like you say, you wanted people to be able to, to hear what you were saying for me. I wanted them to feel, I wanted yeah. them to feel what I was feeling. Yeah. And so, so I did that for a few years and then I kind of let it go to the wayside. I was doing some other art things. So I, I definitely art person all the way. And, and then in terms of writing the book, I, my husband and I were on vacation and we had just turned 50 and we were, you know, sitting in on a beach somewhere. I, I think it was Caribbean, you know, you know, privilege basically. And, and we had just gotten life insurance policies and I turned to him. I was like, well, what are you going to do if I die? You know, jokingly, 
you know, because you, you can be light about it when right. you're 50 and Because you have to when there's, yeah. have to on serious topic. And, and he said, yeah, you know, I'd probably go travel and do this and da, 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 da. And he's like, well, what would you do? And without skipping a beat, I said, you know, I'd, I'd probably buy a little cabin on a lake or, you know, along the ocean, I'd write a book. And, and he turned to me, he's like, well, why are you waiting? So I jumped right in. Basically, he's like, do it. You know, what can I do to help? And, and then the, basically the following, less than a year later, COVID hit. So then I just. You had your cabin. It just yep. was the house you lived in. Yep. Yep. Unbelievable. You know, it's a unique story and also a, a, a story that I've heard in terms of people sort of feeling the call of, of their story in the background. And then all of a sudden it's in the foreground. I find it really relatable because my husband is energetically sounds like your husband, which is comes from enough. Right. So the idea that like everything is possible and I don't mean comes from enough, like he has a million dollars. He just does not come into every situation alert as to what could possibly go wrong. He comes into every situation, sort of assuming that everything is possible. And as long as we're communicating, all needs can be met. I also just want to say that because that is such an invitation towards healing. It doesn't have to be a husband, it, you know, when you have anyone. And I think probably as a trauma therapist, that's what I'm trying to offer people always is the idea that we can come into this with enough that we have agency and, and different abilities as an adult to show up for what is our story now. But being able then have someone hold, hold the space while you're creating, you're going back for your old hard story. And one thing that I've talked about on this podcast and with other memoir writers is most of us that are writing our true stories of our actual lives are dipping back into our trauma stories. You have to do that with care. I mean, I had a period of time where I was trying to meet a deadline and probably should have raised my hand and said uncle sooner and sort of discovered that I was a bit dysregulated at its best and most powerful. The work is transformative, right? We take the pain of our story and we melt it down and we smelt it into something that should be reflective of how much beauty is in the pain, right? That's the that's the gift of being able to work on that particular kind of project. I also know people, I can see you have guitars in the background or musical instruments in the background. You know, people do that with music and they do it with painting and they trek El Camino and they, you know, any, anywhere that we can take the energy that's residing in our system. And the word I'm going to use is manipulate. That's the wrong word, but use it, but co-create with it. Yeah. Take it and co-create it. We, we use it as a transformational tool and then it, transforms us yeah, as well. I imagine it must be a really extraordinary thing to have your book, all your words set out there for you to release out into the world. How does that feel? Are you, is it scary? I think I have felt fear in the past. I'm not really feeling fear in the moment right now. Mostly I look forward to the opportunity to share it with people in the sense that First of all, there is a lot of secrecy and shame around adoption, particularly for first families, but also for adoptees and even somewhat for adopted parents and adoptive families, you know, so being able to put it out there for people as this is something that 
that you will probably find things that you can relate to. And I really like being able to, to do that and to offer that. A big part of being at the place where I am right now is knowing that I spent a lot of those years alone in the grief, both of the grief of the adoption, but also the grief after he died. I mean, other than my husband or very close friends. And then what I realized fairly recently, there's a whole huge, gigantic community out there. So during COVID, I live, so I live in Alaska, you yep. know, using video chats, everybody else finally started using them. So yeah. I was suddenly able to create these new relationships, build new relationships that I'd not been able to do. I met all kinds of birth moms and adoptees. And suddenly I was not alone. That's right. And my hope is that my memoir will help to do that for people too. Uh, there may be some real drawbacks to the internet and all the zooming that we've been doing. And certainly my eyesight has progressively gotten much worse <laughs> near to 50 than 40, but exactly what you're describing, which is, you know, the, one of the poisons that really happens in grief and loss, you know, there's, there's some shame that you have to look out for, but certainly the isolation, isolation. The idea, yeah. you know, alone is fine. Isolated is not. And I exactly. think, I think grief has this unique quality to it, which because people are scared of it and avoidant of it and don't want to make you feel worse, they do things that they wouldn't do if you got divorced. You know, when you get divorced, they're coming over, they're taking you out, they're getting you a makeover, even though you're like, I don't know if I want to do that. People feel as though it's okay to sort of push in. And they don't feel that way with grief. If they say, hey, do you want to have lunch? They, and you don't respond, their response to that is like, well, I don't want to bother her. Grievers don't know what they're doing. They, you know, they're just trying to manage their feelings. They don't know what is good and not good for them. And they're trying to figure that out. And so to the supporters, the idea that you were able to use social media to connect in this way where your story has more meaning, their story has more meaning because grief, ultimately is the thing that really like deeply connects us. Right. Cause it's like yes. the underbelly of love. I love that. And I did a, my fair share of throwing other people's books across my room. The minute they betrayed me, you know, someone would be like, Oh, you might like this book. So I just love the idea that we're writing these memoirs for whomever it is. It speaks to that. There is not in grief, a universal truth about anything that really what we're trying to do is offer, here's my experience. Here's how I came to it. It was incredibly hard because it was always going to be that way, but you can do it. If I did it and I'm just like a normal person, you can do it. And here, this is me just saying, keep going. You're doing great. Keep going. I am very, very grateful for, for the transformation of all of that pain, both what the book has done for you and what I know it is going to do for the people who get to pick it up. So tell us a little bit about how can people find it and everything that Candace tells us we'll put in the show notes, but what are the best ways if people are interested in finding you or knowing, you know, having you come and talk to their group about your experience. How do we do those things? So the easiest way is on my website. So I, I do have an author website, CandiceKale.com. Super, super easy. I have all, you know, all the social con connections there in addition to just being able to contact me. I am really planning to use it as a tool to connect with the people that I've been meeting over the last nine years and, you know, try to try to connect with people in person. I think that 
I've missed that. Living yeah. where I, do. I, I yeah. love where I live. I love everything right. about it, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. This was such a special conversation. I had so many chills. I know how hard the actual doing the book is. I can't say I know anything about the experience that you have been through, but I do know all of the energy that trauma and loss can generate. So it's just extraordinary to meet you on this side of the, of your story and, and get all the goodness and the love and the gorgeous gift that you're giving us all with it. I mean, it's just really, really amazing. This has been a real honor to talk to you. I really, I really appreciate being able to speak with you. And yeah, I, I love every one of your episodes. So this is amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So stay in touch. We'll be back in touch and just good luck with everything as the, as the book gets going. Thank you. All right, Candace, take good care. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.